Amen. Give the Lord a hand this morning. All right. We are in Genesis, and I'm excited about today's passage. I think we're going to, this passage has so much depth to it, I wish I could spend weeks on it, but we are, this will be the longest chapter in the Bible that I've ever preached on. Anybody know how many verses this chapter is? 67 verses, and we're going to cover them all. Yes, we are, but I'm going to do it at a quick pace. Our Bible reader this morning is Ashley Sharp. Ashley, if you come on up here for us. They must have thought you were short. There you go. I tell you, she's not going to read all 67, though. We're going to read 27, and then I will cover the other 40, though. So Lots of difficult names to read, I hope. Um, not too many. I think you'll do fine. Okay, here we go. Okay. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charged with all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman whom I shall say, to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master." Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring wearing, weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder, 
and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way of the house of my master's kinsmen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Great passage there. Great story. This is a story about a wedding. Got one of those coming up, don't we? (laughs) Marriage is a beautiful thing that God designed. That's so important. Who is the author of marriage? God is. It is not a social construct that white men came up with to suppress females and minorities, as our culture is teaching us today. God is the one who invented marriage. It's a beautiful institution. It's between a man and woman. The man represents who? Jesus. And the bride represents who? The church. This is the gospel. And what's at stake here is not just the institution of marriage, but the gospel is what is under attack today. There was a global study done a global, on global epidemiology, and this was a large longitudinal study published that shows marriage helps to reduce the death rate by over third, a third, 35% for females. This was a Harvard study. The researchers argued that the marriage is a near universal pillar of humanity, and even as cultural changes have reshaped our view of the institution, it's not only of value, it significantly improves the overall health and well-being of the fairer sex, that being females. Our findings added to, to an already extensive literature showing that the value of marriage ought to serve as a wake-up call. This is secular researchers, not Christians, saying this. It should be a wake-up call for a society in significant denial about the crucial element of flourishing, wrote two a studies co-authors, a pair of Harvard professors in the Wall Street Journal. I'm not quoting this from Christianity Today. This is from the Wall Street Journal, two Harvard professors, researchers. And they said, married individuals often have lower rates of mortality, better physical and mental outcomes, such as lower risk of cardiovascular disease, depression, as compared to those not currently married. Marriage represents the keystone institution for most societies, observes anthropologist Joseph Hendrick and may be the most primeval of human institutions. Marriage, in its diverse forms, arguably remains our species' most durable solution to the interconnected problems of nurturing children, socializing sexuality, and furnishing social support. This is what Genesis 24 is about. Our society, America, the world is crumbling because we have thrown in the trash can the most beautiful institution that God has made, and that is marriage. The reason that children are ending up in prison, increasing suicide rates, drug addiction, all that, is because they don't have a stable family under a one-man, one-woman marriage that's committed. The world is just saying, we throw all that away, we're going to do whatever we please. But our answers to all of society's problems is to go back to Genesis. Genesis 24. I'm going to divide it up into seven passages. Uh, and that's how you see these natural divisions here. First of all, there's the servant's promise. Secondly, there's the servant's prayer. Thirdly, there's the servant bride. Number four, the servant's worship. The marriage proposal. The attempt to the delay. And then the bride meets her groom. So let's jump right in. We'll move fast and furious, but we'll learn from God's word this morning. It says, the Lord God blessed Abraham in all things. And what's very apparent, if you know the life of Abraham, we've been saying the last couple of months, he does not deserve this. <laughs> He's messed up several times. He's been faithful at times. Remember recently he 
uh, we learned that he was willing to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. So that was amazing. So sometimes Abraham's operating in faith, and sometimes Abraham's operating in flesh, but God is blessing him in all things. God is good, amen? He blesses us even when we don't deserve it. And it says, and Abraham said to his servant, it's so important that you notice that he's nameless. We know his name. I'll, I'll, I'll show you later. He's the oldest of the household. Okay, he's not a young servant. He's older. And he's in charge of all that he had. Anybody want to guess the name of this servant? Begins with E. Eliezer, right. But again, that, that, that's not just speculation. I'll prove it to you here in a little bit. But there, notice when you're reading your Bible when they, people are named and not named. We had that discussion in, in uh, Bible class this morning. And there's a reason that this servant is not named. And it says, put your hand under my thigh. That's awkward, right? <laughs> this is kind of a strange thing to ask for another man to do, to put your hand under the thigh. Uh, Jacob did this with Joseph when he made him promise there in Genesis chapter 47. Uh, I really won't go into this, but there's a whole lot more involved than just the thigh. It's really an awkward Middle Eastern custom of two men who were really close to make a very pinky promise, a more intimate pinky promise, for lack of a better word, okay? But this is, this is something that basically saying, hey, my life is in your hands. Promise me, you know, cross your heart, hope to die, that kind of promise here. He said, did I make, make you swear a promise by the Lord? And I want you to notice, he says, the God of heaven, the God of earth. That contrast is so important because all of the pagans of that day, they thought there's a God of the hills. There's a God of the lightning. There's a God of the sea. There's the God of this and that. And that gods were always regional. And that's why every civilization could have its own God because gods kind of hovered over that area and they were geographically limited. And Abraham's saying, hey, our God, the God that we worship, he has no geographical li limits. He made the hills. He made the sea. He made the lightning. He is the God of all the outer space and all the land that you're standing on. He is the God of everything. My God's a big God, and I want you to promise by him, not some other God. Because see, if you promise by the God of the hills, when you left the hills, you didn't have to keep that promise. But everywhere you go, you're going to keep this promise. And he said, he said promise me that you will not take a wife for my son. The reason he's doing this is because Abraham knows that his days are limited. He's, he's approaching the end here, and his son, who is the promised one, the one that he had waited his whole life for, his only son, okay, by promise, remember um, the other son through Hagar, Ishmael, was the son of their plans, but this is the son of God's promise, and he knows that the future Messiah rests in this young man. He needs to marry right. He needs to marry the right person. And it probably will happen after, maybe I'm after I'm gone, but I need you to send you on this mission. He said, take away from my son. Don't take it from the daughter of the Canaanites. Now they're in the land of Canaan. The Canaanites were the cursed race under Ham. Remember Noah's three sons? And God is going to take that curse and turn it into a blessing. He's going to kick these people out. The Canaanites are wicked people. They, they practice sac child sacrifice and they do all kinds of sexual perversions as acts of worship. And God's like, you know, I'm, I'm only giving these people so many hundred years and then they're going to be gone. God's really patient, but he's going to turn it into the, the promised land. That's what God does. He turns curses into blessings. So if you go back to an odd law in, in Deuteronomy 22.10, it says, you shall not plow with an ox or a donkey together. And, and this was a common sense thing because the way a yoke worked, it, it would hurt the animal that was smaller or the one that was bigger or both because the yoke would be crooked and things like that. And people have done this. People still do this. Here, archaeologists found this 
picture from the Bible years ago. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm sure this is somewhere in Saltillo, Mexico, I guess. But anyway, this is, this is an example of two animals that are unequally yoked. And this is the picture that the Bible uses for when a believer marries a non-believer, that they are not equally yoked. Paul talks about this when he was writing a letter to the Corinthians. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So you picture in this picture, you can say that the the believer is the ox and the unbeliever is the donkey if you want. I don't know. Republican, Democrat, I'm not sure. But anyway, uh, you picture how it's unequally yoked. Just just political joke there, sorry. Um, with unbelievers. And then he asked a rhetorical question. What partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? Here's someone who is righteous, made righteous by the, the life of Christ, his death, and resurrection. And here's someone who is disobedient to the gospel. How can those two people be partners? And then what fellowship, I mean, fellowship meaning friendship, deep intimacy, can light have with darkness? The answer to the, both those questions is, is none. And he wants to make sure, this is not a, an ethnic request. He is not prejudiced against the Canaanites because they're not the same color or whatever they may be. This is based on believing, being religious, because the, Israel had ways for Gentiles to convert and to become part of the nation of Israel. It wasn't a, a lot of people say this, uh, people used to say this, they don't do as much, but when I was younger, people would say, use these verses as proof texts in the Bible, say this is why people shouldn't interracial marry. And it's like, what Bible are you reading? In fact, remember Moses took Zipporah, who was dark-skinned, and Miriam and Aaron had a fit, and God said, oh yeah? How about some leprosy <laughs> you, with your racism there? They, you have a problem with that? You know, deal with me. And so, this is not teaching against interracial marriage. This is talking about interfaith marriage. This is talking about believers and non-believers. This is why he needs to get a wife from the land of where he came from. This is important. He says, I want you to go to my country, my kindred, for my son. This is about people who believe in my God, and this is what I want for my son. The servant said, well, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. So this is a good manager. He's thinking ahead. He's solving problems in advance. He's having a conversation with his, the owner here. And he says, so must I then take this son back? Because you know, if I travel to land and say, hey, there's a guy who lives a few, 400 miles away that I want you to, uh, to marry his, his son. And like, who are you? <laughs> you know? And it, maybe I need to take Isaac back as proof. And Abraham answers the question. He says, Abraham says, see, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, which is a great part story there. So Christ will go before him, the angel of the Lord, and you shall take a wife from there. So God says, I've already got this. We're going before you. We're going to take care of things. What you see here in this is Abraham's being adamant about nobody's leaving. He's, he's committed to the promised land. He's in Canaan. He knows God's going to turn us into the promised land. So he will not allow himself. He's, he's not going to go on this mission on his own. He's not allowing Isaac to leave. They're staying in the land of promise. And he didn't want to take any chance that they, maybe neither one of them would come back. He says, but if the woman is not willing, that's important. She has a choice in this matter. What you see going on in this in this chapter is a tension between God's sovereignty, that he's totally in control, and yet Re Rebecca has a choice. And both are true. God's like, this is going to happen. I've already taken care of it. My angel's gone before you. But what if she's not willing? Well, okay, if she's unwilling, then great. You, you're, you get, you're free from the deal. 
God's recognized that man has a choice, and yet he's in total control, and there's no contradiction there. Only you must not take my son back. So if, if, if she goes and says she's not willing, then great, you're off the hook. You don't have to worry about this. But So the servant, again, no name, puts his hand under the thigh. Really awkward situation, but again, that's their culture. We don't want to be cultural snobs. Different cultures do things differently. I mean, I, I think it would be kind of weird if I lived in Europe and I had to kiss a man on the cheek, either, either cheek. I wouldn't want to do that. You know, that's weird too. But he swore to him concerning this manner. He made a big promise here. Then the servant... And again, little words mean a big thing. He took 10 camels. It doesn't say Abraham gave him 10 camels. He took them. Why? Because he was already in charge of everything. Abraham had put Eliezer in charge of everything. Abraham's one of those guys, he probably has no idea how much money he has in the bank. Eliezer is such a good manager. He's in charge of everything that he took these camels. Okay. And in fact, um, we know it from later verse, verse 32, that there's men that will travel with him. So it's not, don't picture one guy and 10 camels roaming through the desert by themselves. That would be dangerous. He took a few bodyguards with him. Also, he's going to be bringing people back, right? He's prepared for that. You'll see how many here in a little bit. And then he also was taking, again, helping himself to all sorts of choice gifts. He goes into uh, Abraham's treasure chest and starts taking all kinds of gold and all kinds of things to give as gifts, clothes. He's loading up the camels with these clothes and treasure. And he arose and he went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. Now, we don't know if the city was named Nahor or if that's where Nahor, Abraham's brother, lives, or maybe it's both. Maybe Abraham's brother lives there and the city is named after him. And then you, here's kind of a map to help you see the direction that he went. How many miles is this? Anybody take a guess? I think I already said. 400, yeah. 400 miles by camel. This is a, you know, when we read the Bible, we think things happen on our timetable. This is a major endeavor for Eliezer. He's traveling with some men, with 10 camels, with lots of treasure. So that means also they had to prepare for food or at least money to buy food along the way. So let's look at the servant's prayer. We saw the servant's promise. He promised to go on this major trip, but now he has a prayer. And he made the camel, he arrives at his destination of Nahor. He makes the, the camels kneel down outside the city. By the way, if you've ever watched camels kneel down, it's quite a scene. They're pretty amazing animals. And by the well of the water, in the time of the evening, okay, when things are cooling off in this eastern, Middle Eastern desert climate, this is when the women come out to draw water. It was the custom that women did this job, men did other jobs. They worked together to make this happen, but they would draw water for the whole family, for bathing, for drinking, for cooking, all kinds of things. So it was a project in the evening. And he, this, this servant, Eliezer, we don't know if he's a believer or not. In fact, look, look at his words. He said, oh Lord, God of my master, Abraham. You're the God of Abraham. He doesn't call him my God, my Lord and my God. He says, God, you're the God of my master, Abraham, but I'm going to ask you Please grant me success today. That, that's a great prayer, amen? <laughs> Just ask God to give you success because God is the giver of success. And he has seen God at work in Abraham's life so much that he's like, if this mission's going to succeed, whatever God's been doing for him, I need him to do it for me. Wouldn't that be awesome if people could look at our lives and say, man, whatever she, God's doing for her, I want some of that. You know, that we would be an example of answered prayer. And he's asked for success, and he said that you would show steadfast love, not to me, but to my master Abraham. What an unselfish prayer. 
I want you to, you love Abraham. I want you to keep on loving him and answer this prayer. Just use me as a tool. Give me success to make my master happy. What an unselfish prayer. We talked about that a little bit in Bible class this morning. He said, so behold, I'm standing here by the spring of water. And he's going to kind of put out a litmus test for God here. And the daughters of the men, that it's time. They're starting to come out. I see them coming. They're walking in from all parts of the city to draw water from this well. Would you allow, that's what the word let means, would you allow that whatever young woman to whom I say, please allow, the, and so notice who's allowing. God's allowing it, but then he's asking the woman to allow it. Again, you see sovereignty and free will at work together here. And it says, please let down your jar that I may drink. So this is also awkward and weird. Men didn't talk to women they didn't know. Okay, you didn't just walk up to some females, hey, can I have a drink of water? You know, but this, this is what he's doing. He's going to bridge this cultural gap, and says, and she will say, drink, and I'll water your camels. <clears throat> so I'm going to ask her for a little drink, and she's going to offer not only a drink, but the watered, how many camels? Ten camels. Okay, this, that's a bigger project than we probably realize right now. <clears throat> Notice that the sign, or this litmus test, to find a wife is based on character. He didn't say, let the woman have a purple headdress and like uh, whatever type of sandals, or let her be extremely good looking, or let her be extremely ugly, or let her be six foot tall, or let her be, he, he could have given all, super intelligent, he could have given all kinds of criteria, but he chooses one, Lord, let it be a woman with a servant's heart, who was willing to go the extra mile to do something amazing. That's what he's looking for. That's what he's looking for in a wife for his master's son. Also, notice what it's not based on. It's not based on IQ. It's not based on wealth. It's not based on looks. It's not based on any of those things. When choosing a mate, that's a pretty good idea. Let me ask you a question. What are the criteria for finding kids, finding mate for your kids? Or for their criteria for their finding a mate? You know, if you ask the average person or if you look on the average person, it's based on what? Looks. It, it, or it's based on money. <laughs> you know, it depends on if you're male or female. <laughs> Stereotype there. But a lot, of, a lot of our criteria is based on the wrong thing. Here, Eliezer has the wisdom to say, hey, I want a woman with a servant's heart that's willing to serve God, serve others. Want to find the right mate and stay married? Teenagers, are you listening? Single people, are you listening? You want to find the right mate and stay married? Let me give you some, not just some biblical advice, let me give you some statistics, okay? Rasmussen poll found this out to be true. Three things that will lower your divorce rate to less than 9%. Some people say as low as 1%. Some people say no higher than 9 But somewhere in the single digits, divorce rate. That would be amazing considering the divorce rate is 45% right now, okay? Some people say 50, but that's a, a distorted statistic. Number one, Wait to get married until after age 22. The divorce rate for people who marry prior to that is extremely high. People who wait till after 22 to have a much lower divorce rate. What, what do you think is coincidental about the number 22? What typically happens for a lot of people at age 22? Graduate college. Get college out of the way, get into a career, and then get married. Number two, don't live together prior to marriage. This is a secular statistic, not from the Bible. The Bible makes it very clear. Living together for, prior to marriage decreases trust. 
And I won't go into all the details of that right now. But number three, don't make a baby before you get married. If you will do these three things, your divorce rate goes way, way down. Scott Stanley, PhD researcher, professor, social scientist at the University of Denver, cites the following. Despite its popularity, cohabiting couples reported lower levels of commitment, higher levels of disagreement, lots of arguing, and lower levels of happiness than married couples. But people say, oh, you, you got to test drive the car, you got to do all these things, whatever. Th that, that's what the world's mentality is. Trust the Bible and trust the statistics. Um, he goes on to say, let her be the one. Let her be the one that you have appointed. Now notice, she has a choice, but God's appointed it. It's, it's beautiful. It, it's a persistent theme here. And it says, for your servant Isaac. By this, by this sign, if she does this, goes above and beyond, and does the unthinkable, which we'll talk about why that is, I'm going to know that she's the one, and that your steadfast love to my master. So here's a question. Is it good to pray this way? God, if this and this and this happens, I know that it's your will. You know, anybody know a famous story in the Bible where someone did that? Yeah, Gideon. He put out a fleece. This is a fleece. Now here's, God had clearly told him to go into battle and with how many? He made it very clear. But Gideon says, God, if it's your will, I'm going to put out a fleece. And when I get up in the morning, all the ground is going to be dry, but the fleece will be wet. In fact, it'll be so wet that I can wring it out and fill a bowl of water. Now God had already made it very clear what his will was. Gideon's trying to get away out of this or something. He's, he's really scared. Okay, remember when, when, when the angel Lord found him, what was he doing? He was hiding, okay? And he says, oh, mighty man of valor, <laughs> you know, sarcastically, you big courageous dude, come on out from hiding. I want you to fight a battle. And so, but then God does it, showing extreme patience. God didn't have to do it. He said, hey, Gideon, I've already told you what to do. Go obey. Then the next night, Gideon goes, okay, God, I know that happened, but I don't know. I'm going to try it again. Put the fleece out. And this time, all the ground will be wet, but the fleece will be dry. God, in his patience and his forbearance, answers the prayer and, and, and does that. So is it biblical to pray this way? I remember when I was young, when we'd be praying about things, somebody told me some, what I thought what I now, now was bad advice. I said, well, you should put out a fleece before the Lord. You know, ask God, do a test, and then and see if, if you should do that. In fact, um, so it was... Uh, summer before my senior year. And um, God had called me to go to, to be a pastor. And I'm thinking, I need to do something. I need to, I need to get some better education I've gotten right now. And I've gone to public school my whole life. And a lot of my friends at church went to a Christian school. In fact, a couple of different Christian schools. And I thought, maybe I should go to a Christian school. And I was telling my girlfriend, Susie, at the time, um, we were, our whole youth group went on a, a, a trip to the beach and Rehoboth in Delaware. And uh, we're on the way back and we're having this discussion about should I go to a Christian school? Because I feel like I don't really hardly even know as much Bible as y'all do. Because I, I, I didn't grow up in a Christian family. I didn't get saved till I was nine. I was way behind on all my Bible stuff. And I thought, and she's like, we should pray about it. And someone said, you should put out a fleece. Now, come up with something to test God and say, God, if you do this, then it's your will that I go to Christian school. So we came up with this fleece. Her sister, Kathy, wanted a boyfriend. And we thought, well, okay, God, if you give Kathy a boyfriend, then I'll know it's God's will for me to go to Christian school. Again, I'm not recommending this, okay? But God is patient. 
And it, do you know, Kathy and I bowed our heads right, um, Kat, Susie, not Kathy. Susie and I bowed our heads right there then and prayed, said, God, I don't know whether you want to go to Christian school or not. I want to get ready to go to Bible college. If, you're, if it's your will for me to go to Bible college, give Kathy a boyfriend. We said amen, and we're driving down on the bus, and someone taps me on the shoulder and says, Gary, look, and look behind me, and Michael McGee had moved over and sat next to Kathy, and they were getting along really well, and they started dating after that. So Gary went to Christian school. Again, I'm not recommending this, okay? Some people would call this tempting God. Now, God did it for Gideon. After God had already made it very clear what he wanted him to do. So be really, really careful. I'm not saying never do it. I'm just saying do it very cautiously. And if it's very clear what you're supposed to do, definitely don't put out a fleece, okay? If God's already say, you know, you know, to tithe, to go to church, to share the gospel, husbands love your wives. Lord, if you want me to love my wife, you know, turn the TV on by itself without the remote control. You know, I mean, it's just all kind of crazy. It didn't come on. It didn't come on, see? I don't know. I'm off the hook. I told you I loved you once. I don't have to do it again. Okay. So what, let me ask you a question. What do we have that Gideon did not have? We have the Holy Spirit in a different way, in dwelling way, right? What else do we have? We have the Word of God, right? We've got the, the, the body of Christ. We've got all kinds of things. And of course, I can remind you of the decision-making funnel. You've seen this before. When you're trying to decide what to do, before you put out a fleece superstitiously, is there a command or at least a clear biblical principle? Have you sought wise counsel, like Proverbs tells us over and over to do? Have you prayed about it? And do you feel God's peace about it? And usually we put the peace first when really it should be the one that comes last after we've done all the others. And what's so interesting is Gideon, we don't know if he's kneeling in prayer, bowing his head or whatever he's doing, but he's like, Lord, you know, let it be that the one you want me to get here for a bride for my master's son will not only give me a drink, but she'll offer to water all my camels. And he probably didn't say in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> but he said, amen. He looks up and here comes this girl. Before She's already heading his way. God answers prayer. Jesus said, your father knows what you need of before you even ask him. Isn't that great? God is sovereign. He's totally in control. So then that begs the question, well, then why pray? It's because God, the creator of all the universe, wants to have a conversation with you. He wants you to be like a little child that says, Daddy, Daddy, can I have some? Can I have some? Don't you like when your kids have a conversation with you and they ask you what they want? You could just say, hey, here, 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 and start handing stuff out. But you train them to say, Daddy, please, can I have some? He wants that intimacy. He wants that conversation. So before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebecca who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of who? Nahor. So he's got the right family. Of all the odds, of all the women who could have come out, it could have been someone related to someone else, but this is where he sent him. They, they could have, there's other people living there besides relatives of Nahor. So she came out with a water jar, singular. Okay, A lot of times women later got clever and they had the pole and they could carry two buckets at a time. She just has one, singular. And the young woman was very attractive, which is icing on the cake, amen? And in appearance, she was a maiden, which is, some translations say a virgin. Of course, it defines it there, who had known no man intimately. She went down to the spring. This is one of those springs that's dug, the well, where there are steps that go down to it. Don't know how many. I don't, as far as I know, I couldn't find out where archaeologists had discovered this well. But this is one that, don't just picture, you know, a well above ground and, and, and the crank. She's got to walk down to this. 
And then the servant ran to meet her. He's eager. Middle Eastern men did not run. This is one of the few times in the Bible you see that. The prodigal son's dad ran, right? But this guy also runs and says, please give me a little water to drink. He's even leaning her away from what the answered prayer is. So there's no coincidence like he, he egged her on or gave any hints or clues to that. I want just a little bit of water. So now we're going to see this servant bride and see what she does and how she reacts. And she said, drink, my Lord, which Lord doesn't mean Jehovah God, it means sir. And she quickly, notice you'll see this theme repeated. She's very quick about this. She let down her jar after she went down the steps and upon her hand and gave him drink. Does this sound familiar? Who else met a woman at a well? Yeah, hold on to that thought. That's super important. So when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also. Cha-ching! <laughs> I mean, Elliot's like, oh my gosh, this is really happening. And she says, I'm not just going to give them a little water. I'm going to give them water until they have finished drinking. Do you know how much water camels can drink? So she quickly, we'll talk about that in a second. She quickly, again, word repeat here, emptied her jars. She's an industrious young lady. And in the trough and ran again to the well and to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. How many camels does he have? Ten. So a thirsty camel can drink about 30 gallons at one time, according to Heather Johnson, a Bible study leader for women. 30 gallons. How many camels? How many gallons? 300 gallons. Okay, uh, Chris Sharp, come on up here for me for a second. Approximately, and, and guess, they, she carried it on her shoulder. Chris, there's a five-gallon jug of water right there. Would you pick that up for me? Okay, That's a chunk, right? Now, you get to hold that while we're talking, okay? You, you good for that? I picked you because you're so swole, okay? Uh, assuming that Rebecca was a strong woman, she could carry a five-gallon of water at one time. 300 gallons divided by five is what? She made 60 trips up and down those steps with that. Down, up, one. Down, up, two. Okay, so she's going up and down, and she's carrying 30, the 60 of those trips up with that water. You getting heavy yet? It's kind of heavy, a little bit, right? So that's why Rebecca probably looked like this. Okay, she was she was pretty <laughs> she was pretty buff, I'm sure. That was an ancient Polaroid they found in 360 BC. Anyway, um, so anyway, you can put that down for us. So you can see how much. If you want to see how heavy that is, uh, but the the man, and again, eight times. First of all, it calls him the servant nine times. Now it shifts gears and calls him the man. I don't know what's involved in all that, but I've noticed the pattern of the language. It's not even going to call him the servant anymore. Just call him the man eight times. He gazed at her. And the Hebrew word means stunned giddiness. He's like, oh, I can't believe this is happening. This is amazing. I just got done praying. And here, this buff chick is taking this water goes up and down. And I'm like, is this really happening? He, that's why it says to learn whether the Lord had prospered. Is this, am I dreaming here? Is this really happening is what it means to prosper or not? And then Rebecca didn't, notice Rebecca didn't let, uh, let her family's status, which we find out that they're very elite in the community. The city is named after her grandfather. Her family has lots of money. She didn't let, let that bother. She's extremely good looking. She didn't let any of that keep her from having a humble servant's heart. Can you imagine a very wealthy, attractive lady coming and you say, hey, 
can you give me a drink of water? And she's like, why are you talking to me? You know, okay, here's some water. But her having the humility to say, hey, you know what? Let me go ahead and water your camels. You, you've traveled 400 miles. I'll take care of this for you. It's very rare, very rare. Good looks give us conceit. Wealth gives us arrogance. And family status gives us pride. She had all those working against her, yet she had a very humble servant's heart. The man, as it's called, probably realized that she is the one. I mean, isn't that what he prayed for? She, all the prayer was that she'd give me water and offer to water my camels. He could have said, you know what, don't worry about it. I've already got what I'm looking for. But he lets her water all the camels. 60 trips carrying five gallons of water. I don't know if that was for entertainment or what. I don't know. But he maybe was just impressed by her strength. I'm not sure. But when the camels had finished drinking, then the man took a gold and verse 47 tells us that it's a nose ring, which in that culture was a sign of being engaged, uh, weighing a half a shekel, which is six ounces. So a six ounce nose ring and two bracelets, one for each arm. And those weigh 10 gold shekels, which is three and a quarter pounds each. So three, three and a quarter pounds of gold on one arm, three and a quarter pound of gold on the other arm, a six ounce nose ring. He's basically saying, I am engaging you to someone else. Now, what's funny is he hasn't said anything yet. And there's no conversation. He just starts saying, hey, can I see your arm? And she's like, what is all this for, you know? And of course, she probably would recognize what it means. Notice he hasn't told her anything about marrying Isaac. He simply puts the jewelry on her. And he said, please, tell me whose daughter you are. And question number two, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? Now, spending the night with strangers was not unusual in this, in this uh, culture or any Middle Eastern culture. We didn't have Motel 6 yet. That came about 50 years later. And then all the, not really. Anyway, people would enter strangers into their home. And of course, there'd be some social tests. You know, you kind of talk to them, kind of feel them out. Then there'd be a meal. And if they pass that test, then it'd be like, okay, well, here's the quarters over here. And you, know, you usually would have extra room for travelers. Of course, this is a few men here. And so this is not unusual. And Nahor has the means and the, the wealth to do this. And she added, let me actually go back here. Um, she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. And she added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder. She's still looking out for the camels and room to spend the night. So she answers both questions. She was listening carefully. Now, let's look at the servant's worship, how Eliezer responds. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord. Again, we don't know if he's a believer. By his prayer, it's like he's getting close, and maybe now he is a believer. I don't really know. Um, our response to answered prayer and God's goodness should always be humble worship and praise. Has God done something good for you this week, this month, this year? Man, we should be singing praises to him. We should be praying, thanking God regularly. It, it, when we get good things from God and don't worship what does that show? It shows an ungrateful heart. That should be the natural response of worship and praise. And Eliezer got this right. And he even says, he praises God out loud, blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham. He still called him, not my God, but the God of my master, which is interesting, and who has not forsaken his steadfast love. He knows that when God commits to love someone, he never breaks that promise and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, now it's becoming personal. The Lord has led me 
I, I can see this, that this journey was not just something Abraham asked me to do. This is something God ordained for me to do. And he says, and notice how he led him. He led him in the way. Do you know when God calls you to do something? When you're busy doing what you're supposed to be doing. When people sit back and do nothing, well, I'm just still waiting for God to show me where he wants me to volunteer. No, just get busy. Just start doing stuff. Start serving God. And when you get in the way of doing what you should do, God will lead you further. When God called me to preach, I was already preaching and teaching Bible study and serving my church and doing things like that. I didn't know what God wanted me to do. When I was 14 years old, I thought God wanted me to be a helicopter pilot. And I, I was fascinated with that. That's what I wanted to do. But then God changed my heart. But when he did, it was when I was in the way of doing what he was already commanding me to do. Now we're going to see the marriage proposal. Then the young woman, she ran. Okay, So think about that. She's carried up 60 trips with five-gallon jug, and she still has the strength to run. Obviously, she's a marathon runner, too. And so she has the 26.1 on the back of her car, on a camel right there. And so she told her, and this is her grandmother. When the Bible says mother, father, it means any uh, ancestor, any predecessor. So this is actually her grandmother of her household. She tells her this, Milka. And Rebecca had a brother whose name was, and here's the part where you go, dun, 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 because this is the introduction of a bad guy, Laban. You'll hear about him later. He is a conniver. He is a snake. He is an unethical man, okay? And Laban ran. So you see all these people running, but they're running for different reasons. Eliezer's running because he wants to know what God's will is. Rebecca's running because she has a servant heart. Laban's running because, aha, cha-ching, I see the bling. This is gonna, I'm going to somehow engineer the situation where I can make myself some money here. He said, so as soon as he saw, what? The ring and the bracelets. His eyes are not on, what's God doing in this situation? My, you know, my sister's going to get married? Hey, who's this guy, Eliezer? He's from Abraham? No, no, all he sees is gold and jewelry. He sees all that on his sister's arm. And he heard the words of Rebecca, his sister. Thus the man spoke to me, and he went to the man. Again, servant, 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 servant. Now it's man, 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 man. Again, I don't know what's all involved in that, but it's worth noting. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. Again, how many camels? That's important. You'll, I want you to make a mental note of that. So he said, come in, blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? I have prepared the house and place for camels. No, he didn't. You liar. He has not done that. How, he didn't even know that the guy was coming. But he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm on top of the thing. I've already got a place for you. I've already got everything set. I've, I've prepared it. He didn't say we have this. He said, I prepared it. He's trying to take credit for it. And so the man came to the house, and he unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. Now, notice Eliezer gave all that to the camels. Who didn't? Laban didn't do it. Laban said, hey, let me feed your camels. He's nothing like Rebekah. Rebecca's, oh yeah, I'll take care of you. Rebecca, Rebecca could have said, hey, there's some water, help yourself. But Laban goes, oh yeah, here's some food. I, pre I prepared, I'll take credit for it, but you go feed your own camels. You've traveled 400 miles. He's not thinking, he's very selfish, as we'll see. And so there, the water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. So Eliezer didn't travel by himself. Then food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He's like, I, I, I've traveled 400 miles. I really need to get this off my chest. This is really important. So he's breaking with custom here. You usually don't have a business transaction. You definitely don't have a marriage proposal until you've had a meal. It's in, in, in some cultures, it, it could be considered insulting. But Elias is like, no, I've got to take care of this. And they're like, okay, speak on. And then in the next 
15 verses, which I'm not going to go through verse by verse, he, ex- he tells the exact same thing we just read word for word. In fact, I compared the two, I looked, put them down side by side, and I couldn't find any contradiction between what Moses says happened and, and, and Eliezer's account of what happened. You know, you know, some people retell a story and they kind of embellish. He doesn't do that at all. And he doesn't leave anything important out. So it's like word for word, the same thing. So I'm not going to go through it right now. Read that. But verse, skip down to verse 49. He says, now then, if you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness, isn't that what he just got done praying about? God, show your steadfast love and faithfulness to my master. He said, now, if you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to Abraham. You see, again, here's God working on it for Abraham, but there's human agency involved in working for Abraham. It's, it's a beautiful picture that's so rampant through this. He said, and if not, tell me, just tell me, just be honest with me, okay? Then I might turn to the right hand or left. I just need to know what I'm going to do in this situation. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, this thing has come from the Lord. This is obvious. I mean, you travel 400 miles. The first woman you find is related to us. She's our great niece. So there's this connection here in the family. And we're trying to marry within the same faith. He said, you know, we can't even, we, what, what does it matter what we think, whether it's good or bad? They, I don't want to read too much into this, but they could have said, no, this is really good. But they're like, well, what can we do? It's from the Lord. You know, our hands are tied. Behold, Rebecca, she's before you. Take her and let her go. And again, I'm reading some tone into this because their language is kind of peculiar as they're not jumping on board with this. And they said, and let her, we'll allow her to be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. So they, it's irrefutable that God's at work, but they're kind of neutral on the whole thing. And when Abraham, and they're just like, well, you can't fight God, so here we go. When Abraham's servant, now the word servant reappears, heard the words, he bowed himself. Once again, he's worshiping God. And the first time he bowed his head, now he's bow, by, bowing everything before the Lord. He's laying on prostate, prostrate, right? <laughs> anyway, remember Abraham, he bowed on the ground before the Lord, but Lot just simply bowed his head. The servant, he didn't learn from Lot. He learned from Abraham how to truly worship God. And so now the servant, now we're back to calling him servant again. I think that's part of the chiastic structure brought out jewelry of silver and gold and garments. He's already given her a ton of bling. Now he's pulling out more treasure, and he gives some more to Rebecca. He also gave to Laban, which is what Laban was excited about, and to the mother, lots of costly ornaments, lots of jewelry, lots of clothing, lots of all kinds of things. He's proving Abraham's wealth. Some stranger came up the street, hey, I want to take your niece 400 miles away to marry a wealthy family. He's got to have some proof. But the family's going to attempt to delay. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. And when they arose in the morning, again, 400-mile journey, but man, they are up early in the morning. And they say, hey, send me away, my master. Hey, would you guys see me off? It's time for me to go. And her brother and her mother said, well, let the young woman remain with us while at least 10 days. After that, she may go. So reasonable request. I mean, they've only talked to this guy for 12 hours. They met in the evening. It's early in the morning. He wants to take her away. And they're like, well, at least let her hang out for 10 days. We can kind of, you know, say our goodbyes and, and have some quality time with her. But let me just remind you of this. When you step out in faith, there will often be those who try to delay you and they have good reasons. And oftentimes that'll come from your family. People who would discourage, well, do you really have to go to church this morning? I mean, we're here in town visiting. Do you really have to go to church? Or do you really have to go up there, do, you know, serve here or then or do something? Or do you, you know, 
I understand you love Jesus, but you take it a little bit too seriously. A lot of times those challenges to delay and not do what you should do for God oftentimes can come from family. Just an observation there. But he said to them, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. I mean, God has made it very clear this is what we're supposed to do. Send me away that I may go to my master. I mean, he's excited to go back to Abraham and say, hey, mission accomplished. Look what I have here. And they said, let us call the young woman and ask her. So they're trying to put her in an awkward situation. And they called Rebecca and they said, will you go with this man? Rebecca is being asked to do the same thing that God asked Abraham to do about 100 years earlier. Remember, Abraham's in Ur of Chaldees. He said, I want you to get up and go to a land you know nothing about. And I want you to walk out on faith and do that. And now he's asking the same thing of Rebecca. To take a journey of faith, not knowing where she's going. God often asks us to do that, doesn't he? And she says, without hesitation, I'll go. I'll go. She was very sensitive to God's working in the situation. Sometimes, if we're walking in the flesh, God could be working miracle after miracle and lining things up, conversations, and in his providence, making certain people meet at certain places of time, and we're like, I don't know what I should do. Like, do you not see what God is doing here? I mean, look at, look at this church merger that happened about a year and a half ago. I mean, boom, 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 boom. I don't know if we should merge with that church. I don't know. But do you not see what God has done and was doing at the time? And she's like, boom, I will go without hesitation. So they sent away Rebecca, their sister, and, and her nurse. Now, this is really interesting. At first, I've read some commentaries that said the nurse was like the one who nursed her when she was young. It wasn't uncommon for many women to nurse different children. Uh, again, weird, maybe awkward. I don't know all that. But anyway... And some people said that was this, and this was an older woman. But later it tells us the young women. So I throw that idea away. I think this is someone to come along with Rebecca to act as a nurse for her children, another young woman, okay? So, and Abraham's servant and his men. So we're talking to several people here. And they blessed Rebecca. They, in other words, they prayed over Rebecca, and they said, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring, and they don't really know, her ultimate offspring would be who? The Messiah. Possess the gate of those who hate him. And of course, this would be fulfilled a few thousand years later. So now we come to the, the, the climax of the story where the bride meets her groom. Then Rebecca and her young women, so let's just say Rebecca plus four, right? And they rode on the camels and they followed, and they followed the men. Eliezer plus four, five plus five is how many camels? Ten. Maybe, maybe that's what happened. Maybe it wasn't. We don't know. But that, somewhere between six and ten, right? Thus the servant took Rebecca and went his way after she'd only known him for 12 hours. You talk about walking out on faith. God can call us to do difficult things, and we need to exercise faith and just trust him. Now, Isaac had returned from Beer Lehoi Roy. I hope I said it right, which literally means the well of the living, the well of living water. What did Jesus say to the woman at the well a thousand years later? If you would ask me, I'd give you living water. Okay. Again, we'll come back to this parallel in just a second. And Isaac went out to meditate. Man, that is a great thing. Just to stop and think. He's thinking, my dad has sent his trusted servant, Eliezer, 400 miles away to bring me back a bride. Man, is God good? Am I, am I going to be a good husband? Is, is God, is this going to be, will we see Eliezer again? He took a lot of treasure in 10 camels. He could be saying, hey, I'm out of here. Vacation. See you. You know, but he's like thinking about it. He's praying about it. That's a great thing. 
And when we meditate and we talk to the Lord, great things happen. Watch what happened. He lifted up his eyes and he saw, and behold, there, was, there were camels coming. So that's what he saw in the, the distance. You see the camels as the biggest animals first, and then as they get close, you see people. And at the same time, he's lifting up his eyes. Rebecca's lifting up her eyes, and she sees Isaac, and she dismounted from the camel, which was a sign of respect. It's just like, you know, when uh, uh, someone comes into the classroom, sometimes old school you know, teachers would have all the kids stand up out of respect. Well, when you, were, when you saw someone, you dismount a camel out of respect to get down on their level. And she said to the servant, hey, who is that hot looking man? That's from the message. Anyway, walking in the field to meet us. And the servant said, it's my master, which Isaac was also his master because he's falling under Abraham's leadership. And so she took the veil and she covered herself. She's been traveling. It's hot. It's understandable not to be covered the whole trip. But now she's in the presence of a new man. So she's going to cover herself and cover herself like you see Middle Eastern women do. It's fascinating that Rebecca wanted her first impression to Isaac to be about her modesty, not about her beauty. If Rebecca was a 21st century woman, she would have flipped down the rearview mirror in the, on the camel and started touching up her mascara and making everything, make sure everything was perfect. So I want to make a really good impression, see how beautiful I am. She's like, no, I'm going to cover my beauty. I want him to see that I'm modest. Let him find out later that I'm beautiful. And so the servant, again, calling that, told Isaac all the things he had done. What an amazing conversation. He could have told him all the things that happened on the trip. We almost got robbed, and then we couldn't find a place to stay, and then we finally got there. And man, I was praying to your God, because I've seen what he's done for your dad, and I'm praying that God would send out someone who wouldn't say, when I ask her to get a drink, that she says, I'll do all the camels. And then I, as soon as I say, amen, I look up, and there she is. I can't believe it. And I, I ask her to do that. Sure enough, she does. And man, you should have seen her go up and down and up and down, up and down. And stuff. Sixty times she went up and on those steps, drinking the water, feeding every camel till they were done drinking. It was amazing, Isaac. You should have been there. He said, well, dad wouldn't let me go. Anyway, then Isaac brought her, and the word brought her means into the tent of ceremonies. He made her part of the family. This is the wedding that takes place. And I don't think they... Spent a lot of money. This is probably a quick ceremony or whatever, but it means he brought her into the tent of Sarah. She's now part of the family and his mother. And then he took her, which means he consummated the marriage and she became his wife. So they had the wedding, the consummation, and now they're, they're married. And he loved her. It could have stopped there. He could have just brought her and took her, but he went the extra mile and he loved her. This is interesting about arranged marriages. There's still parts of the world that does that, and their divorce rate is much lower than ours. We date, and we do all kinds of things, and we think we're in control. I'm not recommending it. All I'm just saying, we don't have to do things the way mankind does them. We could put a little more thought into it, and it actually it shows a choice. Well, as always, we want to find the gospel, right? Where's the gospel in this story? Well, put your seatbelts on. This is fascinating. Abraham resents, represents God the Father. Remember, he was the one willing to sacrifice his only son. Isaac represents God, Jesus, God the Son. He was willing to be sacrificed, and now God the Son is looking, searching for a bride. The servant, Eliezer, is the Holy Spirit of God. You say, Gary, that's a stretch. I could see Abraham. That's obviously in the Bible refers to that. I could see Isaac. But you're going to make Eliezer the servant? Well, he's the one sent out into the world to bring the bride back to the Son for a great wedding. But here's where my proof is. Eliezer in Hebrew means... God, our helper. God, our helper. 
When Jesus said, I'm going to go away, and I'm going to send you what? The helper, the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send you the Eliezer. I don't think that's a stretch. I think the picture is incredibly beautiful. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. You see how Eliezer was sent by the Father to get a bride for the Son. The servant, the helper, the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father to speak to the bride. The Holy Spirit is the one that speaks to you. You need Jesus. Jesus wants to be your groom. And about the Son, inviting her into a loving relationship with Him. Rebecca is us, the bride of Christ, the church, and Christ sees us as beautiful. This relationship is initiated by the Father. Rebecca didn't go running out and say, hey, I want a husband, I want a husband. The Father initiated this whole process. It was carried out by the work of the Spirit, the Eliezer. It was consummated by the love of the Son, and it was received by a willing spirit by the choice of the bride. Beautiful picture. Now, this is where you may say, well, Gary, I think you're stretching us here. And I will tell you this. I think this is just food for thought. I'm not saying, all I said so far, very clear, almost indisputable. This right here, I think could be a stretch, but I don't think it is, but stay with me. The 10 commandments, I believe, are the 10, the 10 camels are the 10 commandments. I think the number's there for a purpose. Could have been nine camels, could be 14 camels, but God, for a reason, chose 10. And here's why. The camels are used by the servant to bring the bride to the son right? What does the scripture say? Focus on the key words, bring and to the son. Galatians 3.24, the law, the Ten Commandments, was our schoolmaster to bring us, the bride, to Christ, that we might be justified. How does someone get saved? They realize they have broken God's law. This law is a schoolmaster. What is the schoolmaster teaching you? You're a sinner. Here, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Uh, see, I didn't think so. Don't steal. Uh-huh, you did, didn't you? Don't lie. Oh, how many of those have you told? Yeah. And the law, the schoolmaster is saying, here's 10 commandments. Oh, you can't keep any of them, can you? You've broken most of them, haven't you? Oh, and who actually did keep all 10 of these? Jesus. So the, the law, the 10 commandments are to bring us to Christ to see that we can't keep the law, but he did, so that we can be justified by faith in him. The servant also gave gifts to the bride. Remember? The nose ring, the gold on the arm bracelets. The Holy Spirit gives gifts to the bride, the church. We have the gifts of the Spirit. Remember in Ephesians also it says he gave gifts, apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and all that. He gave gifts. So we also fast forward. I remember the woman at the well. Jesus met a woman at a well, but she was not very attractive by social standards. She had to go not in the evening, but when? in the heat of the day, because no one wanted to be around her, because she had been a harlot. But he loved her anyway. Romans 5 says, but God, the Father, shows his love for us, the bride, and that while we are still sinners, Christ, the Son, died for us. The gospel is amazing, amen? Do you know Christ? Have you trusted him? Have, are you the Rebecca who needs to say, yes, I'm willing to go. I'll follow, I'll follow to be married to the Son. You're a sinner. You haven't kept Ten Commandments. Neither have I. But Christ died in our place for that broken law that took our punishment upon the cross. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you so much for this amazing story. The gospel is so beautiful. We are so unworthy. We're not near as beautiful as Rebecca. But you loved us anyway. 
We were more like the woman at the well. And yet you chose us. You initiated the whole process. And yet you put in our hands the willingness to say yes or no. Father, if there's someone here today who doesn't know Christ as Savior, I pray that they would say yes. Yes, I will follow Jesus. I will become part of his bride. Father, thank you so much for the scriptures. We know they're true. Father, we live in a world today when people are throwing the Bible in the trash can and saying it's not true, it's not inspired, it's just myth and legend. But we see it every week. We see over and over again how beautiful it is that this could not be the invention of any man, but this is the truly inspired Word of God. Lord, help us not to just be motivated by it, but help us to obey it. Help us to live and follow it as our instructions for life and to behold the, the face of our and the glory of our Lord Jesus Savior so we can be more like him. Thank you for loving us enough to share this truth with us. I pray that it would plant seeds deep in our heart that would grow fruit to your glory and to our account. We ask this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, Amanda, would you like to help me with uh, question and answer time? As it looks. Okay. Um, while teaching Genesis, have you changed your mind on any things that you thought previously? Actually, several things. But the biggest one, I just, I, I, found this out after I preached it. So I'm going to go back and retract something. So you remember Noah and he, after they got off the ark, he made a vineyard and he got drunk. And it says that Ham uncovered his nakedness and we really didn't know what that was about. And I said, you know, some people read into it that something sexual happened. And I thought that that was too much. And I still think it was. I don't think anything sexual happened between Ham and Noah. But there's three other times in scripture where it talks about uncovering someone's nakedness and it's a reference to a man's wife in deuteronomy it says and you shall not sleep with your father's wife for that is his nakedness in other words that's his intimate part of life you shouldn't go there and so what i believe happened is that noah was so passed out drunk that ham raped his wife his mother and you see that a lot of these bad incidents happen in twos in the bible because that happens later to uh, one of the um, patriarchs. So I think that's what happened. That, that language there is the exact same language used in Deuteronomy, uncovering his nakedness. So I think he was trying to exert himself as the alpha male, you know, which you always see that, remember the whole culture of project, primogenitor and you know, being the firstborn male, being dad's favorite. He's like, no, no, I'm going to exert myself and I'm going to take my dad's wife. And so really ugly, incestuous sin. Remember, the, and it happens also with Lot later. So they tend to run in pairs. So that's one thing I changed my mind on. And again, uh, just looking at the language there, but good question. Who is Laban? So Laban is the one that later will, uh, when, uh, hold on, Isaac, um, I'm blanking out here. Um, Jacob and Esau, right? Okay, so Jacob will go serve, and he wants to serve for seven years for Rachel. Sorry, all these names are... And of course, he tricks him, and he never actually says yes. And then when the seven years come, he gives her Leah. And of course, he's drank so much at the wedding reception, he's not really clear, or he doesn't really care. And he consummates the marriage with Leah. And then he comes out the next morning, and behold, it was Leah. And he goes, and he says, Laban, you tricked me. He's like, hey, that's not our culture, you know? And so he has to work seven more years. So Laban's a, a conniver and a trickster. That's why it says, and Laban ran because he saw the gold, you know? 
Okay, good, good question. Could you better explain the relationship between men having free choice and God knowing everything? I see a lot of people pointing that out and saying it's a contradiction. So I'm curious as to what the Christian response would be. So there are things that we can't comprehend, okay? First of all, if you have a God that you can fully comprehend, he's not worth worshiping, okay? God has to be, by, by definition, much bigger than we are. So there's got to be things about God that we can't comprehend. For example, try to explain the internet to your dog. He can't comprehend it. Doesn't mean the internet's not true, okay? But it, it, it's just bigger than you and I can even comprehend. And so um, a great illustration I've, I've shared before, uh, Bobby Fischer was the world's best chess player back in the 50s and 60s, I guess, during the Cold War. And we had no relationship with the Soviet Union at all, other than every now and then we'd exchange chess players. And Bobby Fischer would go over there and chess was like the NFL in Russia. It was the biggest thing. To be a great chess player was to be a superstar. It was to be like LeBron James or Tom Brady. And he went over there and whooped up on all their best. And there was times that, that um, Bobby Fischer would just kind of play around, <laughs> you know, and just move pieces just to kind of play with these guys and then go, okay, get checkmate, when he could have done it sooner. And so Bobby Fischer was so good that he was always in total control of the board. And yet the other opponent had free will to move his pieces where he wanted. But Bobby Fischer always won. That's a, a, a weak analogy, but it's still an analogy to show the sovereignty of God. God's always in control of the board, and you still have choice to move your pieces. But he's so good, he knows where you're going to move your pieces, and he's always a move ahead of you. Okay? So that explains the sovereignty of God, that nothing happens, not even a sparrow falls without our Father's knowledge. That doesn't make it happen. You still have choice, but yet God knows what your choices are. It's, it's, it's crazy. One more analogy to help you understand. If Right now, if I put a bowl of broccoli and bluebell in front of Isaiah, I know which one he's going to pick. I can say, hey, you have free will. Choose what you want to choose. But I know what he's going to choose, okay? You could even say I set up the choice, but I didn't take away the autonomy of the individual. Was Abraham hoping for a bride whose family at least knew God, since the Bible says Abraham served other gods when he was in Ur of the Chaldees? Could that also be why they weren't very enthusiastic about all the obvious work of the Lord in this situation? Could be. It could be. I, I don't know. I know that uh, they knew of Abraham's faith in God. Nahor actually traveled part of the way with them. Um, and so I don't know. I don't know. They're, they obviously are skeptical, but Rebecca's not. Rebecca seems very willing, whether she's a believer yet or not. I would say she is, but that's speculation. Commentary. A single gallon of water weighs 8.34 pounds. A five-gallon jar a jar of water weighs 41.7 pounds, not counting the weight of the water jar, which might be clay, which is also heavy. For all 300 gallons of water for the camels, Rebecca moved 2,502 pounds of water, not counting the weight of the water pot. Wow, that's great. Good calculations there. You're on your calculator not listening to the sermon, evidently. Okay, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding, kidding. I actually had a question. When you were showing the other verse um, somewhere else in the Bible about um, what does righteousness have to do with lawlessness? Okay. And so the, in order to be righteous, you, you have to follow the law. That, that's what I'm making the connection in my mind. They're referring to the Ten Commandments, right? Right, right. Okay. So none of us can follow the Ten Commandments, though. Right. So we... Not that we're choosing to be lawless, but I guess in my mind I was just kind of confused because if righteousness is 
being lawful or minding the law, which we can't do, then well, then none of us. Okay, I just worked it out. I just, then we can't be righteous. We can't be righteous. Rob is saying something. Okay. Who, I heard somebody say over here. I just worked yeah. it out in my head. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yes, exactly. So we always focus on Christ died for our sins, which is so true. And that by taking away all our sins, he took away the punishment. But that's just half the transaction. The other half is not only did he die the death you should have died, he lived the life you should have lived. So every good thing Jesus ever did, long list, right? Every good thing Jesus ever did is now put into your account. And God says, oh, wow, you are righteous. But it wasn't the righteous of ourselves. It's the righteous of God imputed, what Romans 4 calls imputed righteousness. It's deposited into our account. So if you're $40 million in debt, the debt is canceled. But then $40 million is deposited in your bank account. You're living pretty good, right? And that's what Christ did. He not only canceled the debt, he also deposited his righteousness. That's how, so righteousness, not by works of the law, but the righteousness of God. Great. Amen. All right, let's stand. And uh, we hope you can stay for lunch for our potluck today. And uh, what's the last slide, Matt? Is it the scripture, I think? Oh, let me go ahead and read this to you. So yeah, do you know someone who wish was sitting next to you today to hear messages like this? Go ahead and click again. Um, pray for them and invite them to join you next Sunday and especially invite them to join you on Easter Sunday. And be sure to get some of the business cards out there that have the QR code that we can share the gospel. It's a great way to do that. All right, let's read Jude chapter, uh, Jude, verse, there's only one chapter, verses 24 and 25 together. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory and great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.